Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. Today's a very exciting episode for us because we have finally completed reading Cloud Atlas with the uh, completion of the second section of the Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing. So today we're going to be discussing this section and a little bit about the whole book, but we're not done with Cloud Atlas quite yet because we're going to be watching the movie next episode. So as always, I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. All right. So uh, just to catch you up to speed, last week was the second half of the Letters from Zettelgum section. Uh, we saw Robert Frobisher, who really in the first half of the book had built himself up into a rather successful kind of contributor to Vivian Ayers. Um, his, he basically let his selfishness and his uh, pride directly feed into his undoing. He developed this weird love that then he then wrote off as like a silly crush on Eva and alienated heirs and ran away and kind of drove himself immediately back into squalor before completing the Cloud Atlas sextet, which we discovered Louisa Ray listening to. Uh, and then he checked into a crappy hotel and uh, shot himself at five in the morning. One of the last things that Adam or that Robert Frobisher does do is he finds the second half of the Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing. He reads it and then he includes it in the last letter that he sends to Sixsmith. So then in this case, it's almost like we're Sixsmith reading the letter and then we finish reading the diary. Uh, Adam Ewing, a notary from San Francisco, is traveling back home from the Chatham Islands near New Zealand. Uh, where he meets the strange Dr. Henry Goose, who is picking cannibal's teeth out of the sand uh, for funsies and to make into dentures and for a variety of weird reasons. Adam Ewing then learns of the conquest of the Moriori peoples of the Chatham, Chatham Islands by the Maori people of New Zealand, assisted by European settlers. He then boards the ship The Prophetess, uh, with Dr. Henry Goose, who has agreed to go along to uh, cure an unknown ailment of Mr. Adam Ewing. And Adam Ewing finds in his coffin, or cabin on the ship, Autua, the last Moriori, who has stowed away on his ship to find freedom uh, in San Francisco and elsewhere, I suppose. And uh, that's sort of where we end, uh, in mid-sentence, the Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing. Indeed, which brings us to part two. And I got to say, guys, man, I I was a sobbing mess finishing this book. Well, the, know, the beginning of you. this section starts out like almost like boringly. It's almost like, wait, like this is all that's happening in this last section. And then, oh, man, <laughs> by the end, David Mitchell brings it. Brings it home. Yeah, yeah I spent, you know, probably the first half of the section with almost no notes or underlined sections or anything. Uh, and then the second half is like every other sentence. Yeah, same. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the first half of this section, he lulls you back in like directly into Adam Ewing, which is an interesting choice, right? Because when you read Adam Ewing, the first section, it's the beginning of the book. So you don't have any like weird references yet. You don't have any like, oh, this refers back to this other thing. And it's interesting that in the first part of this Adam Ewing section, there's very little... Uh, reference to the other stories in Cloud Atlas and those references that do occur are sort of very they're like symbolic references more than direct references yeah 
So what happens is that ha at the end of the last Adam Ewing section, where it cut off like in the middle of a sentence, they and in fact I don't know about you two, but I had like had to go back to the beginning and like read the. Oh yeah, I did. Oh yeah, to figure out like what they were doing, they were holding like an impromptu church service, basically. Yeah. To it on the ship, to which nobody came except for Henry, uh, Henry Goose. And then they land at another island where there's like a settlement of Methodists. They call their settlement Nazareth, and they call the bay Bethlehem Bay. And they're uh, it's Riatia in the Society Islands. Riatia, by the way, I thought this was interesting because I looked this up. It's near Tahiti. And it's sort of thought to be one of the sort of birthplaces of greater Polynesian culture and that the settlers who uh, who became the indigenous peoples of Hawaii are said to have come from uh, Raiatea and Raiatea itself was at one point called Hawaii. So I thought that was an interesting connection. We've got a lot of Hawaii going on uh, in Cloud Atlas. Interesting. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um, and really, they... They go to the island, and Captain Molyneux kind of tries to present himself as, like, a godly captain, which we all know is not the case. But long story short, he's trying to strike a deal with Horrocks, who is the, like, preacher and kind of chief of this settlement, uh, to take their wares to San Francisco, and he would have the contract for that. Yes, and their wares are copra, which is to say the flesh of coconuts. And other stuff? Is there other stuff that they're selling? They, like, mentioned it in passing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what, what ends up happening is that we discover, you know, they basically set up a plantation system on this island. And Ewing is, do, is describing it. I mean, it sounds... He's describing it as he sees it. And he's not really putting a lot of uh, value judgment into it. But you can tell that he's fairly disgusted by what he sees. Um... So, like, yeah, it says arrowroot starch and coconut oil defray costs, Captain. Um, and a week God will have it, we shall have an abundant harvest of copra. So Ewing asks if the Indians work of their free will. And Mrs. Horrocks, the preacher's wife, says, of course. And then she says, if they succumb to sloth, they know the guardians of Christ will punish them for it. So... That's not free will. The, the Guardians of Christ, by the way, are like Uncle Tom characters. That is to say, they're like natives who have like become loyalists to the missionaries and, you know, enforce the missionaries' will upon the other natives. Yes. So they go to a church service, and then later on in the day, Ewing passes the church again, and he thought it was on fire at first because there was so much smoke coming out. And what he discovers instead is that they have a quote-unquote smoking school where they are teaching people to smoke teaching the natives to smoke um because it is determined that this is the most effective way to have them succumb to capitalism there's nothing that they want for there's nothing that they need because the island is is fruitful and sparsely populated so what they're doing is forcing them to become addicted to give them an economic incentive to cooperate in this system Oh, colonialism. Yeah. Indeed. That's like straight up opium war shit right there. I, I thought this was great, the sort of smoking school. Uh, and Adam Ewing is also sort of like low-key horrified at this as well. Yes. Uh, and the, the justification is idle hands, Mr. Ewing. We both know what work the devil finds for them. 
yeah. but this way the the natives will be inspired to work and therefore their hands will not be idle i was just saying, another thing i found interesting about this section is at multiple points they talk about the ants and how invasive the ants are that you know one of the table has to be or the tables have to be submerged in bowls of water to prevent ants from crawling onto it um you know at one point wagstaff who's the 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 teacher of the smoking school says until we convert these accursed ants the island will never be truly be ours and then later on seeing that ewing is kind of disgusted by this which is basically you know creating a you know a new form of slavery uh he's told about how there are a type of ants called sleeve maker ants who will just raid colonies and steal the eggs bring them back and then once the eggs hatch they'll raise them and the ants don't even know that they're enslaved and it's saying that, like, this is the, like, it says Jehovah put, yes, Lord Jehovah crafted these ants as a model, Mr. Ewing, for them with the eyes to see it. A lot of stuff about ants in this section. Yeah. Well, this is, so, uh, uh, Adam Ewing goes and hangs out with this Mr. Wagstaff, who is an incredibly depressed man who has come only a year ago to... Uh, to the island to wed a widow whom he was told was like nice and beautiful and whatever but in fact um, is uh, Adam Ewing describes her appearance as slovenly and she is sort of a total mess her depressed herself neither of them want to be on the island they have a sort of like feral child <laughs> whom neither of them care about and they're both just like hate the place so entirely um, at one point uh Adam Ewing remarks kind of like in a way that you you get the idea is, is kind of like sarcastically that um, he says, what fortune I declared to dwell in such an Eden. Um, and he says, so I believed in my Wagstaff says to him, so I believed in my first day, sir, but now I don't rightly know. I mean, Eden's a spick and span place, but every living thing runs wild here and it bites and scratches so. So uh, they just seem to be very uncomfortable, uh, both with the ants and other wildlife, and also with the people whom they claim to be bringing to God. Yeah. At one point, they also talk about how they're replacing the old religion. It says the native children don't even know the names of the old idols no more. It's all rass nests and rubble now. That's what all beliefs turn to one day, rass nets, nests and rubble. I mean, I found that really interesting in light of the kind of grander scheme of the book, seeing what then kind of the current beliefs turn into. Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, and then it's the, you start to see this entire section as this this very dismissive view of like colonialized people from the colonialized oppressors, but the view is presented in such a way that it's presaging its own destruction and demise. And, like, they don't even see it happening, you know? So, at dinner with the Horrockses, uh, Preacher Horrocks gives this really, really d kind of super racist kind of hierarchy of, you know, one race is better than the next, is the next, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, kind of implies that, a, he says, a speedy knocking off the ladder is the kindest prospect. And Captain Molyneux says, you mean extinction. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, that's what kind of happens at the end of this book is humanity has driven itself to extinction. And by the end, you mean the, like, 
temporal end, which is to say the middle, Slusha's crossing yes. and, and everything after. Um, right. Yes. And and it's interesting because he ties his racial hierarchy with an, uh, a temporal progression of, of humanity. Um, and I think, like, one thing that Cloud Atlas comes down very hard on is a rejection of progressive history, right? Cloud Atlas is not interested in humanity becoming sort of like ever more perfected uh, but in fact strongly you know emphasizes that hu you know human beings make the same mistakes and do the same and commit the same crimes and have the same problems throughout you know across vast historical periods and ultimately well, destroy themselves rather than enrich themselves uh, yes that's very true and henry's kind of response to this like rather than saying you know, there's this hierarchy of races or whatever. He says <laughs> there are two goose's laws of survival. And the first one is just the weak are meat, the strong do eat. Uh, and says that it's just because of gunpowder and kind of weaponry that, uh, you know, whites have been able to take over the globe. And Horrocks says, but, you know, were we not granted that by God? And therefore it's the same thing as my hierarchy. And, you know, Goose says, no, what we were granted was a lust for gold greater than any other people's. Yeah, Henry Goose is basically bringing out the guns, germs, and steel rationale for colonialism, or, or account of colonialism. Um, he identifies these technological things, uh, and, and his, his reason for, reading for these technological advances were... You know, Europeans were the most bloodthirsty, and so they were the most advanced in weaponry. Yes, and then later on after dinner, he privately says to to Adam, um, "True intellectual courage is to dispense with these fig leaves and admit all peoples are predatory, but white predators, with our deadly duet of disease, dust, and firearms, are exemplars of predacity par excellence. And what of it?" Uh, and then Ewing asks what the second law is and Goose's laws of survival. And Henry says the second law states that there is no second law. Eat or be eaten, that's it. So this guy is the Napier, the Grimaldi, the <laughs> Ayers, uh, the, you know, all of these characters that we've seen espouse a sort of like ruthless Nietzschean, like eat or be eaten law of the jungle philosophy. That's Henry Goose in this chapter. Yeah, this guy yes. this guy is like the utmost of cynicism about the nature of man. And if we recall to you know when when Frobisher first found this book, he says, you know, the poor man's being poisoned alive by a quack and doesn't even realize it. And here we have Henry saying to Adam like I'm predatory and I take advantage of weak people and adam doesn't even realize what's happening yeah yeah yeah. right exactly to the point where i think even if we did not have that bit about frobisher going like and he's being poisoned didn't even know it i think if all we had were the um were the adam ewing parts of the narrative we would still get it at this point like you know oh. what i mean i think we would still have figured it out at this point Oh, yeah. Well, like, I remember, Sky. when we first started reading this, I remember you asking specifically, so what do you think of Henry Goose? And upon reading just the first part of Adam Ewing, I 
th th see, that's the great thing about the structure of this book. Don't think, don't think I thought anything of it. But then, yeah, Frobisher's little hint, and now uh, Goose's true nature coming out with his laws of survival. I mean, yeah. yeah he's in a... the first, in the first <laughs> section, Henry Goose is revealed. Like Adam, Adam Ewing and Henry Goose seem to be the only characters in the first section, or the only like white characters in the first section of the Adam Ewing story that see the horrors around them and understand the horrors around them. And then it's only in a second section that we come to understand that while Adam Ewing sees the horror around him and is disgusted, Henry Goose sees the horror and just accepts it and just participates. Dismisses it as, yeah, as human nature. Which is um, incredibly disturbing. Indeed. Um, yeah, and so after a couple of days on this island, the captain has succeeded in kind of this agreement to take the cargo. And so they leave the island and go back onto the ship. And at this point, Adam kind of writes in his diary, I recall the crimes Mr. Melville imputes to Pacific missionaries in his recent account of the Taipei. As with cooks, doctors, notaries, clergymen, captains, and kings, might evangelists also not be some good, some bad? Maybe the Indians of the societies and the Chathams would be happiest undiscovered? But to say so is to cry for the moon. So now he's like openly questioning if there's value to colonialism at all. What did you make of that um, metaphor? To, to do so is to cry for the moon. I, I sort of lingered on that as I was reading. To me, it just seems like uh, invoking impossibility, like futility. Yeah. Mm. I, I, are you are you seeing something deeper in there? I mean, no. I was just wondering what I was just I was I just found myself thinking a lot about the sort of like literal meaning. I guess like a dog or a wolf cries at the moon, howls at the moon. Um, I mean, also um, the moon is something you can see but never reach. Sure, sure, and. Uh, you know, it, it goes with the greater sort of celestial narrative of Cloud Atlas. Oh, at one point in this section, um, they describe the city of San Francisco as being populated by, a, you know, and then they list off a bunch of, you know, multicultural people who have all come for the gold rush. But the first thing that they say is by celestials, which I thought was yes. an, an incredible choice. <laughs> I assumed that meant Chinese people. Oh, really? Is that is that is, like an yeah, old timey word for a Chinese person? Yeah, celestial Chinese, a nineteenth century term for Chinese immigrants to the United States, Canada, and Australia. Huh. Oh, I did not know that. But you it, learn in, something uh, new in every the day. context of Cloud Atlas, yeah, it has this the, great double meaning. Because the name Celestial Empire was used to refer to China as it was a translation of the original name for China. Ah. Oh. Okay. Um So the next entry I found this interesting. The, the next entry is dated Monday, 16th December. Well, this previous entry was dated um, the 9th of December. So within the week of this entry where he's writing about his time on the island, that is when Frobisher killed himself. Yes, and during this time, they set off from the island back onto the open sea. Yeah. So. Um, and then... The, the entry is describing crossing the line, which refers to um, the equator, and they would haze any virgins, they called it, which were 
any sailors who had not yet crossed the line. They still do this. They do this in the U.S. Navy today in 2017. I mean, the hazing does not take the same form that it used to, but, like, this is still a thing that happens at sea. Tradition. 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 So the two virgins are Raphael and Bentnail. And Raphael... I can't remember. Was there a reference to him in the beginning section or not? Uh, I, th- I think there was like a single off reference, but we didn't actually find out who he was. Yeah, I think Ewing had mentioned him because he, he kind of has an affinity for, for Raphael. Yes, who's like a, a very young, clean cut boy from Australia who's just wanting to see the world. Yeah. And so they dress different members of the captain dresses King Neptune and uh, Queen Amphitrite. And they kind of paint the virgins' face with tar and then shave it off and dunk them into barrels full of seawater and until they're like coughing. And it, it just does, it does not sound pleasant. It's a grand old time. Yes. Um, and then just like the end of this section, it says, Fenbar was still chuckling at dinner. Cruelty has never made me smile. Yeah, dude. Um hazing hazing's bad yo and our our friend ewing is is indeed a good soul yeah um i want to i want to point out two things from this passage um they both henry goose and adam ewing are sort of watching this thing and at some point pocock who's leading the ceremony uh calls to them and says art thou come to rescue our virgin sisters from my scab dragon uh, and Henry, laughing, retorted that he preferred his versions without beards. And Pocock's repost on maidens' beards is too obscene to record. Um, <laughs> which is uh, an unusual uh, omission from Adam Ewing's journal. But then, like, the next page, Bentnail, which is a little, who is a little bit more, um, uh, you know, he resists a little bit more the hazing. He's more assertive than Raphael, yeah. Yes, he says, Unhand me, you sons of W slash S. Yeah, the next day they catch a, a, a shark. And I like this point. Uh, Adam says, Its mouth and eyes called to mind Tilda's mother. So that would be his mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, he's not a fan of his mother-in-law, huh? So, not only, yeah, because he, he basically watches the thing bleed out. It writhed in its own brilliant ruby juices. Yeah. Yes. And that's a great, uh, a great image. Uh, eyes like your mother-in-law. <laughs> uh, and then th- this section is just peppered with a lot of few short entries. Um, that He's briefly talking about like, oh, the worm is worse, blah, blah, blah. I'm taking more of my medicine. Still feeling worse, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but oh, wait, one of the wait. entries... Hold on, we need to go back to this shark passage because it has a reference to cannibalism, oh, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is an important theme that we've discussed. Right. Um, this this uh, superstitious sailors won't eat the shark because they claim that sharks are known to eat men, and thus to eat a shark is cannibalism by proxy. Uh, yeah, I saw. I mean, there was so much sanmi in this chapter. With the, uh, I mean, the imposed colonialism and the enslavement of the natives. And the way that you're using addiction to keep them, um, you know, enslaved. It's right. Both the like, both the natives' addiction to tobacco and Adam Ewing's addiction um, imposed well, by Henry Goose. Adam yeah. Ewing's unknown, unknowing, like s- 
subduing him o- his own self by taking what he thinks is medicine. Well, and then the bit about the slave maker ants. The ants don't even know that they're slaves, just as replicants don't even know that they're slaves. And oh, then dang. The, the question from the kid, too, do ants get headaches? Oh, yeah, that Zen koan. Yeah. Um, that was that was a great part. And and he says, like, oh, yeah, if they hadn't, like, sort of laughed at this little girl, I would have been standing He's... there contemplating that question today. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, and then, like, after the shark section, he says that he's, there are cockroaches in his cabin, and he woke up with one on his face, and he tried to kill it, but it got away, as cockroaches always do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, I complained to Fenbar, who urged me to pay for it, pay a dollar for a specially trained roach rat. Later, doubtless, he will want to sell me a rat cat to subdue the roach rat. <laughs> then I will need a cat hound, and who knows where it will all end. I think that section, that one sentence can sum up the entire novel almost. Yeah. Certainly one of the novel's like major points about the human condition. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I mean, towards the end of the chapter so much, we get to it being about nuclear energy, nuclear power, the caveats of that. Uh, But at the end of the day, I don't really think that that is what the section is about. And in reading this, I no longer think think that. I think, moreover, the book is about exploitation. And, you know, we see this progression throughout that by the time we get to, you know, Louisa Ray, like, we are hooked on energy. And they're using nuclear energy to f- kind of feed this and exploit this. And, um, you know, Timothy Cavendish is... He's a vanity publisher, and there's so much about the media in his section, even if that's not, like, the primary means of it. But there's still a lot about, like, television they, or, you know, radio communication. Like, they, they there's the bit of I, – I, it's just I, – I see it more now as proceeding towards a refinement of how we can get people hooked on something so we can exploit them. Right. And in and, the and, and narrative of the story – it turns into that we are exploiting people by providing nuclear energy. So then we get the sad story of Raphael. Well, no, then we get the whales. Oh, okay. Yeah. We do we want to talk about the whales. Let's talk about the whales. Well, that gives us more, uh, more emotional connection to Raphael because Ewing is becoming increasingly weaker. Uh, the, the worm as he so thinks is, is doing more and more harm on him. And, uh, so he's taking more of Goose's vermicide. Um, and then Raphael, like, helps him. There's this really nice moment. Uh, helps him by the by the side of the ship to, like, stand at the rail and watch, the, watch these whales. And, I mean, he's a boy who's just seeing the world. Right. And he's excited to be seeing something he's never seen before. But then Adam can't really appreciate it because he's so ill. And he goes back to his coffin. And I found it really interesting. The last line he writes in this entry is, the color of monotony is blue. The next entry is Christmas Eve. And it's just short. He says that his hands are swollen and Henry cut off his wedding band. The band is safe in my, or the band is in my doctor's safekeeping for he knows a Spanish goldsmith in Honolulu. Who will repair it for a reasonable price? Ah, uh, Adam, why you got to be so trusting? 
Yeah, I mean, Adam uh, Ewing saying, like, earlier in this section, in fact, like, the the previous page, that, you know, oh, well, he's going to sell me a roach rat, and then, uh, then he's going to try to sell me a uh, rat cat, and then I'll have to get a cat hound. <laughs> and then the next page, he's like, oh, yeah, he had to cut off my wedding ring, and he's holding on to it, because he knows a guy in Honolulu. It's like, really, dude? Adam Ewing, you sweet summer child. But then we have this moment, Raphael is, like, seems seriously troubled and comes to Ewing for help and he's well don't forget the way that this is framed though it's on Christmas day yeah they have a kind of a piecemeal feast for the captain and the not not the crew you know Ewing is a guest even if he's treated very poorly he's a passenger um but he's in such poor shape that he's in digestive trouble so Raphael knows that he can run into Ewing outside of the head. Yeah. And so there there he is indeed, waiting to kind of corner, corner Ewing and ask for advice. Um, and so then he asks him, he says, God lets you in, doesn't he? If, if you're sorry, no matter what you do, he don't send you to, you know, and then here the apprentice mumbled, hell. So he's clearly troubled by something, and uh, Ewing is just too focused on how ill he feels and does not feel that he can uh, address this at the moment, so he basically tells him sorry. Well, what it says is, an attack of laxity obliged me to return to the head. <laughs> yeah. Now, even if you don't don't know what laxity means, you know what laxative means. <laughs> Do you remember what all, one of the first things that happened in Slusher's Crossing was? Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his brother gets murdered because he's got the runs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or his brother is captured by the Kona. His father is murdered. And um, what is the brother's name? Oh, boy. Uh... Let's look it up. Wait, it wasn't Adam, was it? Oh, it totally was. Yeah. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah. Cloud Atlas, why you do this to me? <laughs> yeah, and uh, the ex- the specific verbiage that Zachary used was whole spew. Um, I mean, we have to hand it to David Mitchell that he's got the humor enough about his, like, grand you know, interconnected model for this book that he includes like a bout of diarrhea as one of those interconnected themes, you know, like this is a shit joke. (laughs) Well, this is why, um, I guess readers before the show, I was, I was telling, um, John and Katie that I had just finished watching the film. Oh brother, where art thou? And, um, which is a film I've seen before, uh, not for a very long time. And I feel like, there are some points in this section that have a very similar sort of like, like tragicomic tone where, I mean, Adam, uh, in this Adam Ewing section, David Mitchell is making all sorts of jokes and Adam Ewing comes to develop this very sort of like gallows sense of humor. Um, that is really interesting. I, I, there's flashes of it in, I guess all of the sections, but I was surprised to see it come up so much here at the end. Do ants get headaches? I gladly <laughs> should be turned into an ant to be freed from these agonies. 
poor Adam Ewing, sicker and sicker he gets. But I mean, you know, looking at the question, do ants get headaches in context of San Mi, it's really, are the individual units, are they, do they feel pain? Are they people? Are they? Well, and more, Im more importantly, do the slaves feel pain? Do, are yes. the slaves people? Because these are the ants. Are the weak individuals, do they have souls? Do they feel pain? And of course they do. Yep. Yeah. So the next day, or no, later on in this, on Christmas Day, he finds uh, everyone is just kind of like drunk on the deck and they're like empty bottles rolling around. And he sees that Raphael is one of them. And he, he he's sad that after their conversation last night, Raphael had turned to the bottle rather than turning to Christ. And um, he's passed out. And then he sees Mr. Borhave, the... Uh, the Dutch first mate kind of s grabs Raphael, slings him over his shoulder, says, slapped the sleeping princess's buttocks and carried him, his somnolent burden to the after hatch to keep him out of harm's way, I trust. Yeah, when I read that, I was like, oh, snap. Okay, now we know what's going on. And sure enough, we get confirmation. Um, yeah. Which, which is so to say that... Uh, Raphael is being like raped by Borhave and other members of the crew. Right. Yeah. And uh, the next day he kills himself. Uh, by hanging, which, um, let's see, hanging comes up elsewhere in the novel, right? I don't recall, but you know what does come up elsewhere in the novel? Suicide. Well, no, when Zachary gets caught by the Kona and like the middle late section of that story they rape young boys oh yes that's true mm -hmm. but suicide too yes well yes <laughs> i was actually referring to rape but yeah real happy topics here right yeah the cloud atlas is um heavy guys um, yeah uh, yes but but so ewing of course feels that he is responsible and he um, ma makes note that Raphael is about Jackson's age. Jackson being his son, of course. The the son who edited this passage for us, or this diary for us to read. Yeah. And uh, things kind of quickly go downhill after here. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, his condition gets worse and worse. And it says that the... Adam tried to, like, bring it up to the captain. And the captain basically just didn't care. Um, and almost seemed like the captain would kill Ewing or would just as rather, no, sorry. Then he runs into Borhave and kind of accuses Borhave and then warns him. So Borhave says notaries of the United States do not vanish as conveniently as colonial cabin boys. And then he's just racked with guilt, feeling like he should have been better at that moment to Raphael, if he knew that he was planning on suicide, he would have said like, you can't forgive a planned suicide. Repentance has to come after the act. And also, you know, like pain and suffering like is temporary. And, you know, there will be a period after like in which this like exploitation will end. Yeah. And throughout basically what happens next is just, Ewing 
continues to get sicker and sicker and basically feels that death is near. Um, he has some sage words for Jackson. He says, when you are a grown man, do not permit your profession to sunder you from loved ones. Well, he says, yeah, I'm about to die. And I made Henry promise to deliver this journal and my possessions so they will be forwarded along. He gives this word of kind of wisdom to Jackson, but then there's like an asterisk and it says, here my father's handwriting slips into spasmodic illeg illegibility. Now this is Monday, December 30th. The next entry is Sunday, January 12th. And we uh, find out what has finally gone down. And basically this Ewing has written this entry after the fact and is going back and recounting what he now knows to have happened. And Ewing is now at this point, as he's writing this, he's in, um, he's in a, he's in a nunnery. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. Yes. So Ewing had been getting sicker and sicker. Um, and Goose manages to basically keep him locked away by telling everyone that the parasite was contagious, which is interesting since it was a parasite. <laughs> and also, if it was contagious, why hasn't he been in a quarantine the whole dang time? Yeah. 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 Um, and so then basically near the end, uh, Atua comes and like says, I want to talk to Adam. And Henry turns him away and says, I mean, entirely lying, like says that Adam confessed to Henry that Ottawa was this, you know, basically trying to exploit him, keep him away, you terrible racial slur. Like, Henry's being racist, and Ottawa kind of understands that this is not real. And it's also and at this moment that Ewing really understands. Uh, because Goose is flat out lying to Atua and, and Ewing writes, why had Goose lied so? Why was he so determined no one else should see me? The answer raised the latch on a door of deception and an horrific truth kicked that same door in. So he realizes... Well, yeah, this is Adam Ewing's ascension, basically. Right, exactly. And then Henry kind of delivers the last bit of poison, cuts the key off of uh, Adam's neck and opens up the trunk. And he's kind of talking to and mocking Adam at the same time. He's basically being a bad Bond villain right now. Exactly. He says, surgeons are a singular brotherhood, Adam. To us, people aren't sacred beings crafted in the Almighty's image. No, people are joints of meat, diseased, leathery meat. Yes, but meat ready for the skewer and the spit. I So this, this whole paragraph, I basically like highlighted and just wrote wow beside it because this is this is so genuinely evil and gross yes well and then here he says uh, i mean immediately after this you know aren't we friends blah 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 but henry this is wicked like pretending to be adam and he says well adam the world is wicked uh maori's prey on moriori whites prey on darker hued cousins fleed fleas prey on mice cats prey on rats so there we get the cats and the rats again Christians on infidels, first mates on cabin boys, death on the living, the weak are meat, the strong do eat. And thus, once again, Goose's philosophy on life is kill or be killed. Well, and then he says, goodbye, Adam, you were no more gullible than any other of my patrons. Oh, 
Yeah, so he <laughs> this is not the first time this is a he's run this grift. Right. Uh, and then at this point, Goose opens the trunk and looks through it. Says he found an emerald. Uh, was unimpressed. Then looked through bundles of documents relating to the Busby estate and tore open the sealed envelopes in search of banknotes. I heard him count my modest supply. He tapped my trunk for secret compartments, but he found there were none. And last thing he does is he clips off uh, Adam's buttons and kind of says, like, I'm disappointed in you, Adam. I killed you for this. And you, the value you were carrying is almost nothing once you subtract the value of the poison I spent. I have to make a uh, completely random note here that has nothing to do with Cloud Atlas, but... Lastly, he snipped the buttons from my waistcoat. Now, a long, long time ago, not on this podcast, but on another podcast that we have done previously, <laughs> we had another friend who lost some buttons from his waistcoat. And this was under Bilbo. Mi- <laughs> yes, under very different circumstances. But Bilbo Baggins lost the buttons from his waistcoat. While squeezing out of a door. Yes. So you and you were in good company. Yes. Um, Ewing is kind of a Bilbo-ish figure, actually. Like, that's not a terrible comparison. I mean, th- yeah, there, there are there are cases you could make. Um, you know, he's kind of this, like, unwitting, uh, you know, participant on this great voyage who is a little bit naive and a little bit, like, out of place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Ewing um, is no burglar, that's for no, sure. No, no, not at all. Yeah, and then... The next thing he remembers is of drowning in salt water so bright it hurt. Uh, So at first he thought that Borhave had just thrown the body overboard to kind of silence the whole affair. But it turns out that Ottawa had had got him, carried him up to the deck and forced water down his throat to make him vomit up the rest of the poison. And at the same moment, he he says, like, drowning was by far the least troublesome option. So I cast about for a dying thought and settled on Tilda, waving off the bell hoxie from Silvaplana Wharf so many months before with Jackson's shouting, Papa, bring me back a kangaroo's paw. Now, do we remember what Silvaplana Wharf is? I do not. That's is, where... is that the wharf from um, Louisa Ray where the shootout happens? N- not the shootout at the end. It's the shootout with her father. Oh shit! You're right. Oh, yeah. With Lester Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's cool. Is Silver Plana Wharf a real place in San Francisco? No, I don't think it is a real thing because you know they're in Buenos Aires. Well, no, but, but but Adam Ewing is in San Francisco. Yes, but if you remember, there's also a uh, a neighborhood in Yerbas called. Ewingsville. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. The only place named Silva Plana seems to be a place in Switzerland. So, I just looked it up too. Yeah. <laughs> um. So you know, it could be that just like there's an alternate port or something that he went to for that. I don't know. Like, yeah. Or maybe I mean, you know, it's like you know, maybe Adam Ewing tells everyone he's from San Francisco, but he actually lives in Buenos, uh, or in what? What is it? Buena Yerba. 
Um, Buenos Aires, yeah. Buenos Aires, yeah. yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't grow up in the city of Philadelphia, but when I'm traveling abroad and people ask me, like, where I'm from, I say, like, Philadelphia or New York, just because that's a place they know. But Altua has saved our friend Ewing and takes him to a nunnery, which is going to be a little nicer and smell less like death than, than this infirmary they stop at. Well, at first, even the nuns turn him away because yeah. they think Atua, they just see a, like a, a black man and they think he's, you know, exploit, going to exploit them somehow. Um, and it, only because a nun re- apparently recognized Atua uh, did they kind of let them in and, you know, give care to Adam. So here we have, again, kind of a critique of savagery within religion mm-hmm. yeah this part was great he you know when they're at the infirmary out to us says patience more mr ewing this place smelled death i take you to sisters and then adam ewing thinks how out to his sisters might have strayed so far from chatham <laughs> isle was a puzzle i could not begin to solve but i entrusted myself to his care um yeah like he doesn't realize he's talking about nuns not his literal sisters Wrong sisters, yeah. Ewing. And then he says, By the third day I could sit up, feed myself, thanks to my guardian angels in Ottawa, the last free Moriori in this world. Yeah, just like Zachary, man. Exactly. Exactly. You, you mean Exachary? Exactly. Uh, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the parallels the- between Zachary and Ottawa in this section are strong. Quite and then what strong. I found, what I found really interesting is it says that Autua insists that Ewing saved his own life because Autua was only there to save Ewing's life because Ewing had saved Autua's. Cannibalism by proxy, but in reverse, like saving people by proxy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was actually going to take this back to Lord of the Rings as well, Katie. Well, I guess, Bilbo, that's from The Hobbit. But um, because if Frodo had not saved, this is a spoiler alert, by the way, to anyone who has not read Return of the King. Um, but if Frodo is... had not taken such pity on, uh, on Gollum, on Gollum, and saved Gollum's life, you know, any number of times, then Gollum would not have been there at the end to basically save Frodo's life. Although, that's like a much more cynical twist on it. Because why Gollum do you guys keep using the these slurs and calling him Gollum? His name is Smeagol, guys. <laughs> he self-identifies as Gollum. Yeah. Well, that's true, I suppose. I guess and, I can't and, argue with that. And he, in he that would be moment, like, he would be like, please, Smeagol is my slave name. Call me Gollum. But in that moment, he was truly Gollum. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and then, oh, I'm sad that I didn't get the chance to talk to you guys about the Lord of the Rings back on Talking Tolkien. Can we just can, do all of the works of Tolkien over again? Maybe <laughs> that'll be our next novel. No, you JK, can talk, guys. You can talk to me about Lord of the Rings anytime. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. We really can. But we digress. Yes. Um, what I found then really fascinating is he says that by now Goose is famous and known as Arsenic Goose. Um, mm-hmm. But he's probably long since escaped and there's no way to like track him down, which sucks. Um, and then he says, I'm exhausted and must rest. Today is my 34th birthday. So I find it really fascinating that Adam's section i mean this is not the end of the section there's like one entry left but it ends more or less around his birthday 
And Frobisher ended saying, like, I knew I'd never live to see my 25th birthday. So uh, Louisa Ray is 26. Yes. And Frobisher, Frobisher just turned 34. So he's a decade older than I mean, Ewing, Ewing just mm-hmm. turned. Yeah. So he's a decade older than Frobisher. Like, you know, again, not that any of these really mean anything specific, but taken all together, it's just kind of evidence of all of this interconnectedness. Yeah, it um well, let's talk let's talk about like the nature of reincarnation in Cloud Atlas at the end, I guess. Um, All right, well, we only have one section of Ewing left. But it's a doozy. And, and it's it is it is yeah, it is a doozy and this is basically Adam Ewing's philosophy on like the fate of civilization and a call to action. And a I call mean, to know. action. Yeah. For for us, the reader. Like this, I I I don't know. Like it was the 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 last page of this book, um. Just had me sobbing. Yeah, and what this really reminds me of actually is. There are a couple of points in this book in which characters give kind of manifestos, but the most clear one is, is Isaac Sachs. In the beginning of Louisa Ray. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's in the second section. I don't it, even remember. It's, what... it's in the second. Or yes, it's at the yeah, beginning the of the s- second section, right before yeah, he gets what... blown up in the plane crash. Yeah, the and, one. Yeah. And now, now Ewing has the same thing, and he says, "My recent adventures have made me quite the philosopher." You know, and then he writes down kind of his take on history, since we had Horrocks's take on history and and Goose's take on history, and. He says, to wit, history admits no rules, only outcomes. What precipitates outcomes? Virtuous acts and virtuous acts. What Wait, precipitates he says vicious acts vicious and acts. virtuous acts. Sorry, yes. Mm-hmm. Vicious acts and virtuous acts. What precipitates acts? Belief. And then he kind of talks about the nature of belief. It's both a prize and a battlefield. You know, if you believe humanity is a ladder of tribes, then you're going to exploit it. Or if you believe that... That's how you, you know, become a Henry Goose. Yes. Uh, but... You know, you also, you you can believe in in other things as well. If yeah. we believe well, that human, if he if you believe that humanity may transcend tooth and claw, if we believe divers, races and creeds can share this world as peaceably as orphans share their kennel nut tree, if we believe leaders must be just, you know, then such a world will come to pass. And then this part really hurt to read in light of the first two weeks of the Trump administration. Oh, mm-hmm. dear God. This was he like... Said, yeah. He said, you know, if we believe leaders must be just, violence, violence muzzled, power accountable, and the riches of the earth and its oceans shared equitably, such a world will come to pass. I am not deceived. It is the hardest of worlds to make real. Torturous advances won over generations can be lost by a single stroke of a myopic president's pen or a vainglorious general's sword. Yeah, that that just really punched me I, in the gut. I think uh, next time I'm out protesting, my sign is going to read, quote, torturous advances <laughs> won over generations can be lost by a single stroke of a myopic president's pen. And then, I'll, you know, attribute it to Mr. David Mitchell. I'll be there with you. Uh, for real. No, I- I'll have a sign next to yours that says, to hear more like this, listen to uh, 
interlibrary loan. <laughs> and then and then we can have a third sign that says truth is singular, its versions are mistruths. Versions mistruths. Are mistruths. And then we can have a fourth sign that says, except I don't want to actually skip to this yet. <laughs> but because... yeah, uh, Ewing declares that he is going to pledge himself to the abolitionist cause. He has resolved um, from, from what he's seen. Because I owe my life to a self-freed slave and because I must begin somewhere. I think that's like such a great encapsulation of how an activist becomes an activist, right? It's like yeah. it it you it because like something reaches out to you and help and and calls to you and also because like well you got to start somewhere, you know? You got to pick something. Right. Yeah. And then oh, this part was so good. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This this but, I mean, we we guys I I mean, um to, to pull back the curtain a little bit, listeners, we selected Cloud Atlas as the novel to read shortly before the 2016 presidential election and have recorded it, these episodes entirely in that in the aftermath. And it could not have been a a more fortuitous uh, selection. Absolutely. So, yeah. so and thank so, you, Jonathan, who picked yeah. this one out. Well, I mean, I really just wanted to read it again and talk about it with people, and I, I'm glad that we did. But Adam ends by saying, you know, he's going to become a, an abolitionist, and he was exp- kind of thinking what his father-in-law would say. You know, we've, we've heard a lot about Tilda. We've heard a lot about his, his wife. We just discovered that he doesn't like his mother-in-law at all, you know, car- <laughs> compares her to a shark. And now he thinks, uh, you know, on what his father-in-law will say. And... Basically, that it's just a. It's worthless. You'll never be able to convince anybody. Um, people believe this so strongly that you're not going to make a difference as yourself. And that and they'll then, like kill you. They'll like if you try to do that, they'll just kill you, and you won't accomplish anything. Is what. And right. then he, there's this line, he he who would do battle with the many-headed hydra of human nature, must pay a world of pain, and his family must pay it along with him. And only as you gasp your dying breath shall you understand your life amounted to no more than one drop in a limitless ocean. And the last line of this book is the most beautiful image of hope and encouragement that we, that I I think in the entire thing. And Adam Ewing's response to that is, Yet what is any ocean but a multitude of drops? And that same sentiment of you got you got to start somewhere. It's the same thing. And not only that, but what are we all drops in this ocean? I'm, what are what are all of these souls that have been that are interconnected throughout this whole story? They're all parts of the whole. All drops in the ocean of humanity. Yes. I, yes. It's interesting that you I you know, I don't know if I see this last line as hopeful so much as sort of like resigned and and um you know, I mean You are so basically, cynical. Oh well God. no, I mean you didn't I think that Frobisher <laughs> saw uh Six Myth you, uh, yeah. Well, no, <laughs> what I mean by that is Adam Ewing is saying is almost like agreeing with his father-in-law that, that no, the it is struggle hopeful. is futile. It, and yet, but no, he's saying like, it listen, is hopeful. It, okay, fine. I mean, I, the, the conclusion of this book is, I would say more like resigned to fighting what may be a futile, a futile battle. Because like, 
ultimately, now, Adam Ewing's I, I, life of activism is futile in that at, we know that at the end of this timeline, humanity is like destroyed in you know in nuclear war. And yet, I think Adam Ewing realizes this, and he still feels like it's a fight worth fighting. Because what and he's I, saying is not like, I'm one person, and I can't make a difference as one person, but rather like, what makes a difference is each individual person deciding to. Yeah, what makes a difference is every one of those drops that make up that make up the ocean and 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 i i i see what you mean by you know we we know what happens to humanity at the chronological end of this story we know what happens but like you said at 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 the at the end of your statement sky is that yeah maybe he's resigned himself to know that there are the gooses there are the henry gooses of the world but there are also all of the adam ewings of the world and no matter what happens, what is any ocean but a multitude of drops? Indeed. Yeah. yeah. And also, but then the section just before that, where he talks about the multi, or the hydra-headed, you know, beast that is human nature. Like, remember all the points at which I've, like, noticed hydra being, like, a recurring mm-hmm. element. Like, it was the name of a clonery. It was, um, it, it was, it was what Frobisher called the sixth, Vandevelde children it was the name of the nuclear reactor I don't know I just it's a high it's it, you said it was that the hydra the word hydra was recurring like the yeah. eternal recurrence of both uh you know uh, Ayers and Frobisher and the eternal recurrence of the comet marked hero in our story mm-hmm. yeah so uh that's cloud atlas guys that's cloud Man. atlas Series wrap on Cloud Atlas. But, but I think, I, I think like, to take your point, Sky, that's what I like about this movie. I mean, this, that's what I like about this book so much is the future that it presents is, like, categorically cynical, but the book does not end cynically. It ends hopefully. Like, because at the end, what we are reading is fiction. Oh, yeah. Of course. And, so, and like, if anything, it should serve as a call to action to be the Adam Ewing. Mm-hmm. In these troubled real-life times that we live in, I think what I find myself mo- worrying about most, believe it or not, is, like, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if I'm being manipulated? What if I don't understand? And in reality, it is eat or be eaten, kill or be killed. And what I love about the end of this book is that it... it confirms to me like no like it doesn't have to be that way like that we can build a better world for ourselves it's not going to be easy and the you know single stroke of a president's pen can erase decades of change but that doesn't mean that change can't happen and that change isn't worth working toward and i think that's what is hopeful about the end of cloud atlas it's um yeah thank you david mitchell yeah I, is uh, David Mitchell just sitting at his house in? I think he lives in like Ireland or something. Is he just like sitting at his house right now, going like, "Yep, I called it ten years yep, ago when like, I wrote Cloud Atlas." I wrote this, guys. Oh boy. Um, I mean, this would have it would have been interesting to read. I mean, I was an adolescent at this time, and I don't know how much I would have gotten out of Cloud Atlas. Um, but it would have been interesting to read this as it was published, which was to say in the aftermath of the worst of the bush administration years and what 
the sort of political strands in uh in cloud atlas would have looked like at that period of time because obviously they look very different and very specific to us right now but um it would have been interesting to read this in like 2006 Mm -hmm. yeah um at a time when i mean like quite frankly at that time um you know nuclear war seemed of like a distant possibility and i actually think like the people who care about those sorts of things like the what is it the doomsday clock like those foundations at that time when cloud atlas was published i think the doomsday clock was like the furthest away from midnight that it had been in like decades and now it's the closest it's been ever so um you know again it, it's a very prescient novel that david mitchell wrote prescient like a uh, miranem Yes, indeed. Indeed, like Miranim, the prescient. Um, yeah. I miss Miranim. I wish Miranim and I could hang out again. Well, you will when we watch the film Cloud Atlas. Uh, oh. Yeah, next episode. Yay! Uh, we'll talk about it more next week, probably, and have more kind of concrete thoughts now that you guys have finished the novel. Mm-hmm. Mostly just what I want to say is, what I love about this is the way that it it presents so many themes by using d entirely different stories rather than like different characters or whatever. Like you look at Anna Karenina and like the character of Anna represents like sinful life and the character of like Levin represents like a life well lived or something. You know, that's reductive, but like this book does that by using entirely different stories that are seemingly unrelated to each other, but then ties them together with these weird little recurring themes like, you know, diarrhea bouts or whatever, like <laughs> to make it, to, to show you how these situations, these themes are so intertwined and related in such a complex manner that there's no way you can really divorce them anymore. Yeah. It's a beautiful accomplishment. Mm-hmm. All right. Do we want to move on to favorite things? I mean, in terms yeah. of favorite lines, mine is just a multitude of drops. It's my favorite uh, line from the book. I tried to pick one that we I thought we probably would not like actually talk about in the context of our usual conversation. So here's what here's what uh, one of my favorites from the section um, when. Uh, Autua is trying to save Adam Ewing from Goose and trying to get him medical assistance. Uh, he, like, throws Borhave overboard, um, and he didn't know, like, Ewing doesn't know where he is or, like, what's going on or whether he's alive or dead. He's kind of in this, like, crazy fugue state. But he says, My reason informed me that Borhave could not be in heaven and Autua could not be in hell, so we must be in Honolulu. I, I love that. Great, I thought that was a great, great sentence. It really if, was. If you're not in heaven and you're not in hell, well, then you, you must gotta be in Honolulu. Be in Honolulu. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my favorite, aside from uh, do ants get headaches, um, I think my favorite is a, another piece, and, and, and also besides the multitude of drops, but another piece from Adam Ewing's philosophical musings at the end of this section um, about the world the world that if we believe leaders must be just this is the kind of world that that will be 
And just this very simple line, it is the hardest of worlds to make real. And indeed it is. Um, but it's something that I think Adam Ewing would insist, and we all must insist, that no matter how hard it is, it is of utmost importance and extreme worth. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, the, the, I think the last thing I want to say is that, dear readers, um, if you've been reading Cloud Atlas along with us, then you know where we all stand now at the end of Cloud Atlas. Um, it's, it's just a, it's such a strong ending, um, that I feel like it's, it's hard to just like talk about it. You know, I, but if you haven't been reading along, I mean, I think it's possible to listen to this podcast, um, the way we've been doing it and follow along with our synopses and just sort of listen casually to our commentary. You should go and and read it because this novel is infinitely more rich than we can give it justice on this podcast. Oh yeah. It is. And it's infinitely more rich than I had initially anticipated. Uh, and Cl- that's Cloud why, Atlas, I think I underestimated you a little bit. That's why I wanted so badly for you guys to read it, for anybody to read it, because I, I saw the movie because I'm a devotee of the Wachowskis, and I liked the movie. But I also think that some aspects of the movie, notably like the science fiction bit with Sanmi, really got transposed onto the novel after that. So a lot of people were then just kind of resistant to read the novel at all. And it frustrated me because as, you know, as we've seen, this book is so complex. complex. It's yeah. such a mind fuck. Yeah. And there, but like, it's not a mind fuck in the way that I don't know, like the prestige is or something because yes, you're right. It doesn't exist just to like trick you and be like, Whoa, like it uses its complexity to hammer in its, it's 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 overall meaning and really to demonstrate that is overall meaning is so slippery and ill-defined and impossible i've just never seen a book that used form quite the way that cloud atlas uses form you know yeah like the form is inextricably part of the theme right yes for style reflects content um, the the structure and, and presentation of the novel is uh, part of what the novel is saying. Uh, well, we talked about the movie, so uh, just so y'all know, next week we will be discussing the Cloud Atlas film directed by the Wachowski siblings uh, and starring... As well as, as well as Tom Teichwer, the German director. Ah, okay. Um, and starring a lot of people. Yeah, starring a murderer's row of uh, Tom, Hollywood actors. T- Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Ben Wishaw, um, Hugo Weaving, Hugh Jackman, Susan Sarandon, um, Duna Bay, like, uh, uh, J- oh, um, Jim Broadbent, who plays Timothy Cavendish in the most perfect casting of the movie. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's great. Now, does he also play Henry Goose? Because I would... Imagine Broadbent as Henry Goose. No, but he does play Vivian Ayers. Oh, oh that's also good. Yeah. So that's great. I, I mean, the only thing I know about this movie is that like it uses the same cast to tell like all the stories, and like you know they actually have the same actor playing like different characters and different stories. 
Correct. Um, so I'm excited to see how they do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll be watching the movie next week and talking about it. Uh, but after that, you know, I'm, obviously the book is over, so what's next? Um, I will say that what is coming up next is a bit of a transition because I will be taking a sabbatical from our show for a while. I, you know, it's been no secret that we've had some difficulties releasing a couple of episodes on time and that's been entirely my fault and my responsibility and I just have so much on my plate right now I need a breather so thank you for listening to me and um, you know what we're going to be doing is bringing in another co-host and uh, Sky how about you introduce us to Uh, Lauren yeah sure Um, our uh, guest co-host joining us on for our next novel uh, is Lauren Weaver. Uh, Lauren is holds a uh, master's degree in French literature from NYU, um, hey. but she's she's also real chill, so uh, don't let that intimidate you. Um, she is my girlfriend, but she's also very much her own person, uh, and she's going <laughs> to be joining us both for next week's uh, episode where we discuss the Cloud Atlas movie. She's she's read Cloud Atlas, so she she won't be lost. And uh, and then uh, so all four of us will be on for next week's episode and then uh, she'll be joining us as we read uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, So I'm really excited to announce that that will be our next novel for Interlibrary Loan. Um, And yeah, I guess so. The Handmaid's Tale is. um. It's about to be a Amazon Prime original miniseries, so that's a good tie-in, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that's coming well, out in the next couple of days. Also similar to Cloud Atlas, it is a book that is very, very prescient in our times. Mm-hmm. Also, yes. uh, it's coming to Hulu, not Amazon Prime. Wait, for real? Did I mess that up? Yes. Oh, no! Oh, coming it is uh, coming to Hulu, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Hulu. Um, Sorry, not Amazon Prime. Yes. I, I've read The Handmaid's Tale, and I'll be reading along, so I'll probably pop in from time to time just with a couple of thoughts. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, Oh, go ahead, Katie. Oh, I was just going to say that I read it in high school, uh, but it's been a while, so I am looking forward to revisiting it. Um, and I have never read it, so I'll be reading it uh, for the first time, and I'm very excited about that. Um, we'll miss John a lot uh, going through The Handmaid's Tale, uh, but you'll be back, right, John? Not going away oh, forever. of course. And I, I mean, this is sort of how we thought of uh, interlibrary loan working as our schedules and lives and commitments uh, dictated. You know, we could sort of swap hosts in and out um, at least a little bit, uh, you know, to ensure that we were always getting a good product out to you, the reader. Yes. I'm, I'm taking a much needed two and a half week long vacation to Australia, which would be in the middle of our podcast. So we would have had to delay that anyway. And... Uh, yeah, I just need to take some time, take a deep breath, and relax. Cool. All right. Well, thank you uh, once again, listeners, and join us next week when we watch the movie. Uh, we'll see you then. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. 
We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at ILL Bookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better-sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. 